If you have Bibles, please open to Mark chapter 3, verse 13 and 19. It's always great to be back with you guys and to be able to preach and to teach you God's word. Today, or tonight, we're going to look at Mark chapter 3, verse 13 to 19. We've been by reading God's word and we're going to pray and then we'll go into the preaching of God's word. John, I'm sorry, Mark chapter 3, verse 13. He went up on the mountain, and he appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to them, to them he gave the name Bonerger, which means son of thunder, and Andrew and Philip, and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot. And Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Father God, we're thankful for your word. And again, another time for us to be able to be together to worship you from singing and now to hearing your word. And Lord, may you transform our hearts to be more like you. Lord, we know that your word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and can shape us and mold us and cut off sin in our life so that we can be conformed to the image of your son. I pray that you would do that tonight. In your son's precious name, amen. Well, this last week I read this article by the scientific website, and it, it talked about this idea of failure to launch. And I know that's a movie title, but that's, that came from this, I think, this idea, this, this phenomenon that's going on where people choose to be childish. And this is usually in the Western world, in very Western developed countries. People uh, would you know, reach a certain age and they choose to kind of stay like a child. And we, in another term for this is called the Peter Pan syndrome. And usually this is the reason, or some people think the reason for this is that there's too much comfort going on. You know, they go back, they go to college and they go back home and then they just decide to just Stay at home. The mom and dad can take care of me. And why do I need to go out and work when I have all this security? And when confronted, uh, usually it's because, um, you know, they feel that there's always some other exterior problem and it's not usually themselves. And, uh, you know, these people that have this Peter Pan syndrome, they usually don't contribute or support in any way. In fact, in the U.S., this number seems to be growing and growing. In 2014, there was about 7 million people, men in particular, that did not have a job. And sadly, as we look at our culture, it seems to get worse and worse. And worse. And Peter Pan, you know, the cartoon character, he, he, you know, he's fake, so he's, and he always looks like a child. But, you know, in a, as adults, or at least he should be adult, the Peter Pan syndrome doesn't work. You can act like a child, but you clearly, this is just by the way that you look, it will defy the fact that you, you know, you're not growing up. Some people have different reasons for it. They, or they make, some things are legitimate, other things are excuses. But this should not be the case for the Christian. In the Christian life, there should be no Peter Pan syndrome. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 4, it tells us, sorry, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12, it says, for though by this time, you ought to be teachers. You have need, again, for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles, and you have, need, you, have come, you have come to need milk and not solid food. 
The Bible speaks against that Peter Pan syndrome, this lack of a desire to grow up in the faith. And usually, if you lack that desire to grow up in the faith, you will lack the desire to grow in every area of your life. And as Christians, we need to continue to develop in our walk with the Lord. And as you grow as a Christian, you should be more mature. Who you are now and who you will be five years from now should be different. Who you are five years from now should be different from who you will be ten years from now. So how can we get over this Peter Pan syndrome in our faith? Because I think in our culture, I think that the more I'm in pastoral ministry, the more I see that in the church. Why is the church so ineffective? Why are we losing our, our battlegrounds? Is, is it because the world is becoming more and more sinful? And I do think there's a component to that, but I think part of it is because the people in the church, people who know the truth, fail to grow up. There's this perpetual Peter Pan syndrome in their own spiritual walk. I don't know if this is your first time here, the book of Mark is what we're going through. We're going through verse by verse. And uh, at this point, uh, this is probably early on in Jesus' ministry. He's been doing some healing, and the, he's, the crowd is growing. And not only the crowd, the people that want to be healed, but there's also the critics, people that are against God or, or, t- or testing Jesus, saying that you can't do these things. You can't work on the Sabbath. You can't heal on the Sabbath. And Jesus is defying all of these religious norms. And as a crowd grows, he, we, uh, last week Roger talked about how he had to go to different places just so he can teach. He had to go to secluded places so he can pray. And as the crowd grew more and more, he needs to delegate the task of the ministry. And that's what we're going to look at today. As Jesus chooses these 12 people, they're, they're these individuals that start off, you know, infant in their faith. And over time, we'll see through not just the scripture, but also in church history, how the Lord grew them to be men that shook the world. So, if you want to be like these individuals that are used by God mightily to to get over the Peter Pan syndrome in your own spiritual walk, here are the three truths, or three just three things that you need to remember about your walk. If you want to avoid the Peter Pan syndrome in your faith, here are three things you must remember in your walk. First, we're going to see Jesus' choice. Jesus' choice. Verse 13. And he went up to the mountain and summoned those whom he himself wanted, and they came to him. Notice that Jesus said, or Mark writes here, that he went up to the mountains. Uh, usually, and uh, we've said in the past, that whenever Jesus goes up to the mountains to a secluded place, he's there because he has one thing that he wants to do, and that's to pray. In fact, in Luke Chapter 6, it tells us that he was there praying all night. And we don't know which mountain he went to exactly, but we know that when Jesus goes up to a secluded place himself, he wants to have this fellowship with the Lord through prayer. He prayed for the people he's going to choose. And usually when he's praying, he's, he's asking, it's usually before some major event that's going to happen. Uh, he prayed uh, in the wilderness for, uh, for four days because this was right before his ministry, um, right after the baptism, but before his ministry. And now he's praying once again throughout the night, as, as Luke says, for these individuals. He's asking the Lord uh, to, to, uh, for these people, these disciples that he, that's going to follow him, these apostles. And he's praying for faithfulness and fruitfulness. And this includes Judas as well. 
in John chapter 17, gives us a hint on what are things, some things that Jesus prayed for. He's really praying for them to grow and to hang on to the faith. He prayed all night for this. Um, a few weeks ago, I was really, really sick. I thought it was, I thought it was like COVID or something, but it wasn't. It was some sort of food poison. I was throwing up all over, and every time, it was kind of like you know, going in and out of consciousness, just sweating all the time. And any moments of lucidness I had, I was just praying, Lord, either take me now or just teach me the lesson I need to learn, just help me. And, and other times I'll be praying for other things, but I wasn't praying throughout the night. Like, it wasn't consistent. It was whenever I felt like throwing up, like, Lord, help me now. Um, and usually, for I think for some of us, we understand that. Uh, when there's difficult circumstances in our life, whether there's a trial or, or just different uh, struggles, we, we pray longer. Or if there's some sort of ministry uh, thing that, or big decisions we need to make in our life, we'll pray extended periods of time. But very rarely, I don't know anyone that's tried to pray through the whole night for just one decision. Usually people pray for maybe several seconds or minutes at best, but very rarely will we pray for and asking the Lord to help us and give us wisdom for something throughout the entire night. This is a lesson for us that we need to learn is that if you want to be effective in the Lord in doing things for the, for, to, for the glory of God, you must pray. Prayer is a vital part of your ministry. If you want to be faithful and fruitful in all that you do for the Lord, you must prioritize prayer in your life. I've heard it said that uh, much prayer will have much power and no prayer, and there's no power. And I think for us as Christians, we, we're not effective and we don't grow because we don't pray. We don't take time. It's a, it's a discipline. It's something that people generally will not know. You know, we're, we're, we're called to go and find a place secluded and pray. This is not something that gives you any accolades. You don't get rewarded for how much you pray. But yet, the Lord refreshes us. He gives us guidance when we go to him in prayer. And that's what Jesus does. He goes and he prays, and then he goes and he summons them. Verse 13, he went up to the mountain and summoned those whom he wanted, and they came to him. This word summoned is this idea of this acting upon them, these men. He chose them, and he drew them to them. He wanted these individual. Now, back then in the Jewish mindset, teachers don't usually pick their students. It's kind of like some of you guys when you went to college. You chose the college that you want to go to. You chose the school because there's some sort of field or subject that you think that this school is good for, or maybe they just thought they're the only school that accepted you. Like me, in my case, no one else accepted me for, except for these particular schools. That's how the Jewish was like in the culture. You, don't, you had to choose your disciple, disciple, disciples. You choose your teachers. You choose your mentors. So the fact that Jesus is doing this, he's, in, he's, he's really breaking a lot of the norms. He's choosing his disciples to follow him. In a lot of ways, it's almost like I heard that the football draft happened when, like recently, right, the last few days. I know because I have friends that are like, posting things and like, oh, woohoo, we have this person. That's kind of like what it is. Like, you know, when people, pro teams are choosing college students out of their collegiate sports into the pro team, that's kind of like what Jesus did. There's this election process. And that's what we see that Jesus gave, uh, we see the, the doctrine of divine election here. That Jesus chose these people because he wanted them. He wanted these people for themselves. He chose them. He saw what they were able to do. He saw their potential. He saw how they could be fruitful and be used by him in the future. He drew these individuals to him. He saw what they will be, and he wanted them. Again, this is a tremendous amount of grace here because the Lord knows all of their mistakes. 
I mean, the, the gospel of Mark is really good in terms of highlighting all of their faults. And we'll see that as we continue going through the book of Mark. But yet, in light of everything, and that's just the stuff that's recorded. You know, there's, I'm sure there's a lot of dumb things that the apostles did, and then Jesus had to put up with it. He's incredibly patient. He was shepherding them. He lived among them. He knew what they were going to say that were offensive to the Lord, but yet he, he saw these things, and yet he still chose them. And that's like us, isn't it? The Lord, before the foundations of the world, before there was even this planet, the Lord saw and he, 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 he loved us. Before the foundations of the world, he knew all of our mistakes. He knew how, how, how many times we'll fail. He knew how the moments of unfaithfulness, yet he still loved us. He still loved us and chose us for his divine purposes. And if we remember this truth, the fact that we're chosen by him, it will make us want to strive to honor him with our life. He knows our failures. He knows their failures, but yet he still chose us for his divine purposes. And the result of that is that they, they came to him. Um, they, they broke, this word here is this idea of just breaking apart, the severing of, his, of the old life, putting everything aside to follow Jesus. This is, a, this is the, co- the cost of following Jesus. It will cost you Everything. Luke chapter 14, Jesus, right, Jesus says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, this isn't saying that you should hate people like with an anger type of hate, but that your love for the Lord should be so much greater than the love that you have with your intimate relationships with those in your life. Now, if you just look at this passage, just imagine your own Self in this. Can, can you imagine that you, can't, you have to hate your own father, whatever your dad's name is, or your own mother, or your siblings, or your children? You know, I'm thinking about this. Like, I, have, I have to love the Lord so much more that my love for Kelly has to seem like I'm hating her. Or, or to Ruby and Nicholas, it has to seem like my love for them is just so shallow compared to the love that I have for Jesus Christ. This is the cost for discipleship. This is the normal expectation for the Christian life, that it will cost you everything. And it says right after that, who does, in Luke chapter 14, verse 27, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciples. And these disciples understood that. When they came to Jesus, they were willing to give up everything to follow Christ. We saw early on in the book of Mark where, where the disciples, Peter and the, the fishermen, all of them, they, they just threw off their nets and they followed Jesus. They gave up their lucrative enterprises to find, because they found the pearl great price, the one that is more valuable than gold coins in this life. Being chosen by God is a privilege and it will cost you everything to be used by him mightily in this world. You'll have to give up everything, and it's going to cost you not just this life and your even relationships, but it's going to cost you in order to do effective ministry. We did the announcements earlier. There was day camp. You know, some of you, if you want to do day camp, that means you might have to give up uh, your vacation time in order to serve and to win these, hopefully share the gospel to these little kids because you believe it's worth it. You think that, okay, I could lose my two weeks of vacation. I'm not saying, I'm not being a legalist here. I'm just saying if, you, if the Lord is working in your heart to do this thing, you are going to lose some time. You're going to lose, you're going you're to be exhausted because you're with these kids, but you see the value in, in, in trying to make the next generation of Christians so you're willing to give up time 
or, or vacation so that you could do day camp. Or even when we do, think about the worship band, everyone that comes in and sing, they have to give up time throughout the week. That's to practice their instruments, to master um, the, the tools that they have, and even preserve their own voice so that they can be helpful uh, in the worship service. We think about things like Foster the Bay or Care Portal or the ministries that we have here at the church. It will cost you. I'm, I'm part of both Foster the Bay and Care Portal. Sometimes we get these text messages saying the things that they need in order to help the foster kids. And we have the, the one with Virginia that was on the announcement. That's going to cost you a lot of money because gas is expensive. Ministry is going to cost you. If you want to grow up, if you want to be effective in the Lord, it is going to cost you. Not just saying, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. That doesn't, that's, not, that's, not, that's very trivial. But it's going to cost you your life if you want to be effective. You want to grow up. If you want to get out of this Peter Pan syndrome of your spiritual walk. It is going to cost you. And why would you do this? Because you're, you understand you're chosen by God. That he loved you. That the God of the universe has placed this unique affection for you. And you can't help but want other people to know about him. If you want to grow up, you need to remember that you were chosen by God to be his choice servant in the time like this. And that's how you can grow up in the faith. Not only do you remember Jesus' choice, but our second point is that you need to remember Jesus' commission. You need to remember Jesus' commission. Verse 14, and he appointed 12. And it's fascinating that he uses appointed because in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, he uh, in Genesis, this is the same word that's used, appointed. I mean, in terms of the created order, the Greek translation of the Old Testament used the same word here. And it's this idea of, of that when he chose these 12, he made something new out of them. That, there were be, that, that, that there's a new creation here. This is the doctrine of regeneration. That they were dead at one point, and he brought them new life. That Jesus created something new in them so that they can be effective for the Lord. And it's 12 because... You know, we know that there's a 12 is a significant number in the Bible, but understand that in that context, there were the Jewish people that claim that they were uh, the chosen people of God. You know, these are the Pharisees that, that believe that, all of the, that, that following God requires you to obey all of these rules and regulations. And Jesus tried to break those things and saying that, no, you think that you are God's instrument in this world? I'm going to destroy all that by appointing these 12 apostles. So that's why there's 12. He created something new with these 12, and they're called to be with him. He pointed these 12 so that they would be with him. And this is this close relationship that he, that, that he wants to have with these disciples. This is life-on-life discipleship. You have to understand, too, as Christians, this is our privilege as well, to be called and to be with the Lord and to be close with him, to be made in a right relationship with him is a complete honor that we do not deserve. If you want to have a mature spiritual life, you need to be close with Christ. Because closeness with Christ creates Christ-like character. Closeness with Christ creates Christ-like character. If you yourself want to impart that to others in your life, you yourself need to walk closely with the Lord. I'm reminded recently about how, there's a question that I had, is why do pastors keep getting disqualified so much? Why are all of these pastors being caught with all of these secret sins? And just reminded that these pastors, these great speakers of the world, they were so good at preparing sermons, but they were not good in terms of preparing their own hearts to worship the Lord. 
we need to remember the fact that we are called to be with Christ. It's a privilege to be able to be called sons and daughters of Christ. He calls them, these apostles, to go and preach. This is in that he would, and he could send them out to preach. He either will go and tell other people about Jesus. This word to send, it's the verb form of the word the apostles. He, they will be his representative. They will go and tell other people about Jesus. They're called to walk closely with Christ, to observe him, to learn from him, and to go and tell other people about Christ. They will have this up-close and personal interaction with Jesus. They will see all of these miracles, and they will tell other people about their Savior. And Jesus says here that, and he gave them authority to cast out demons. This is this unique ability, because before this, only Jesus can cast out demons. But now he's imparting to them this unique gift that, so that they can authenticate the fact that they are representing the one true God, that they're representing Jesus Christ. The apostles were given, given this unique power and gift and authority to cast out demons. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12 says, The signs of a true apostles were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. And we'll see more about that in a sec. But you have to understand that, you know, as Christians now, we don't, we don't get to cast out demons like the charismatics always claim. But we get to do the first two. As Christians, we get to be close with Jesus because of, because of the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. But we also get to tell other people about Jesus. If you want to get out of that childlike faith, you want to grow in the faith, you must remember that, you have, that the Lord is with you, that he's drawn your, you close to him, and you're supposed to represent him. This is what Matthew 28 tells us, that he'll be with us till the end of the age. We're supposed to be with him and go and tell other people. As Christians, we, inf- we are first and foremost privileged to be called sons and daughters of, of, of God. And then we go and tell other people about this. We go tell other people about who Jesus is. Is this something that you care about in your life? Do you cherish your relationship with Jesus Christ, and do you care enough about Christ to tell other people about him? This isn't a call to like, just be lazy or, or not care about your work or school, but rather you need to see yourself as primarily a Christian and your main objective on this earth is the evangelist and then everything else. So you're a Christian evangelist first and then you're a student. You are a Christian evangelist first and then you are a parent. You are a Christian evangelist first and then you are a dentist or a barista or nurse or or a tax auditor, or business owner, a doctor, or a coder, whatever it may be, you're first and foremost a Christian evangelist. And we usually get these things backwards, right? Like when people ask you, oh, what do you, you know, tell me about yourself, the first thing we usually tell them is about our profession. How often do you say, well, tell me something about yourself. Oh, I'm, a, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. That's not usually the first several things that we do to describe ourselves, which is really to our shame, Right? We're so afraid and ashamed of the gospel that we don't want to tell people that we represent the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We tend to highlight our profession in this world as opposed to the profession that we claim that we have in Christ. If you want to grow in Christ-likeness, you want to mature in the faith, you must remember that first and foremost, you were chosen by God, and not only you were chosen by God, but that he gives you a, a particular commission in this world to represent him and to tell other people about him. Now, 
in case you think that you're unworthy. And in reality, we are all unworthy for this. We're, un- un- we're all unworthy to be called followers of Jesus Christ and to represent him. But notice our third point is that the people that Jesus chooses, our third point is that Jesus' comrades or Jesus' crew or coworkers, whatever alliteration you want to use, we see them in, the, in these 12 disciples. I'm going to spend most of my sermon here, but these 12 disciples, they're not the best of the best. You know, they, they have good traits, but there's a lot of faults in them too. And I think as we look through them and as we kind of jump over through the different gospels, we'll see that, hey, you know, these guys are imperfect. But what they will be in the future, and as we see in church history, they're going to do amazing things. And the book of Acts will tell us this and the rest of the scriptures. And we're going to just draw different lessons as we go through each of these apostles. So third point is Jesus' co-laborers or co-workers or crew or comrades or click. Whatever C word that you want to use to describe a group of people. All right, so alliteration. We'll see this in verse 16 and 19. Godly people, you guys understand, they don't start off that way. You know, missionaries aren't like saved and converted all instantly. They're going to give up everything and then do amazing things. That usually takes time to develop. You know, that's why elders are required not to be young in the faith. You know, that takes time to develop so that they won't be entangled by the snare of the devil. It takes time to develop doctrine and to have those doctrines lived out. It takes time for the, the work of the Lord, and, and it, it takes sometimes even trying times for you to mature in the faith. Everyone is providentially shaped by the Lord and, and, and used for his purposes. The Lord is, and he will continue to, be, to forge you for his divine purposes. And who you are now is, again, not who you will be. And these disciples are exactly that. Character takes time to develop and is shown over time as well. And that's for us, too. Your faith will develop as you grow in the Lord. So again, who you are now should be different from who you will be. And who you are now should be radically different from who you were five years ago. Some of you were saved five years ago. There should be a growth in your knowledge of God and, and, and also in your maturity and the faith and your love for the Lord. And if you notice that there isn't that in your life, then that's a really... This is a good opportunity for you to have some self-evaluation. Do you understand the gospel in your own life? Have you truly accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Because a genuine Christian will grow up. A true believer will grow up in the faith. And as you continue to be faithful, even at the times when you fail, as long as you continue to cling to Christ, the Lord will grow in you in the faith. So the first person they will see is Peter, or Simon Peter. Uh, it's fascinating if you look through this list. Uh, some of these names are very endearing names, and if you look at all the Gospels, when they look at all the names, some of them are different. And it's not a contradiction of Scripture. They're just different writers have different names. And some of these names are endearing, and some of these names, I think, are intended to show, I think Jesus gives these names for some of them because they either reflect who they are or what they will become, or he'll redeem the name for them, uh, as we'll see later. But Simon, uh, who Jesus calls Peter, he changed his name because I think this is what he wants. He sees in Peter what he wants him to be. He, he's going to build the church on, on Peter. He's going to be that, the rock, uh, you know, Jesus being the cornerstone, but he's going to be that foundation. And, you know, I had a professor, I think maybe uh, Johnson in our in Cantonese ministry. He had the, we have the same Hebrew professor. We didn't go to the same seminar at the same time, but, you know, he's having it now. But this one professor, this Hebrew professor, 
he, he would always, when he's teaching through the Hebrew grammar, sometimes people won't understand it. And then how he, he would make us remember is that when a student asks, like, hey, what does that mean? He would just call them by name, and then he will say, oh, this is the, let's say, for, for example, Corey. Like, oh, this is the Corey rule. And he'll explain the grammar, and it's like, okay, you guys remember the Corey rule to embarrass them, but also for the you know, students to hopefully remember that. It's like a mnemonic device, and it's like an aspiration for them. And that's what Jesus calls him Peter. Peter, you know what that word means? It's, it means rock. And even though he does not seem that way now, eventually he'll be like that. And just a little tidbit, a little you know, Bible trivia. Every time when Peter does something dumb, he goes back to his old name. But every time he does something good, he's known as Peter. Uh, in fact, it's, uh, when, G- when you know, Simon Peter was, after his denial, his restoration, Jesus calls him Simon. He like, kind of lowers the bar for him because he knows that he does not live up to, at least at the time, he, he doesn't live up to what he claimed to be throughout the life of Jesus' ministry. Peter, or Simon Peter, worked hard and did translate in his ministry. He's part of Jesus' inner circle, and in fact, all four gospels has him as number one because he is the leader. Um, he is the only one that experienced probably most of the unique and miraculous things the most. He's seen it the most. He was there during Transfiguration. Um, he, he writes this in, the, in, in First and Second Peter. Uh, he spoke a lot about the Lord, and he, he, you know, we, we know him as the, the apostle with the foot-shaped mouth and because he talked a lot. Peter, ta- I, I, I totally identify with Peter because yeah, I talk a lot. Um, but Peter, he was one that rebuked Jesus the most, and he was also rebuked by Jesus the most. Um, you know, Peter, eventually he does deny Jesus, but eventually he won't stop telling people about Jesus. So he goes from, I don't know who this Jesus is, to do you know who this Jesus is? So there's this radical transformation in his life. No one praised and rebuked Jesus the most. Um, no one was praised and rebuked by Jesus more than Peter. Peter failed a lot, and it's very humbling because the book of Mark is written by Mark, but it's, you know, it's, it's basically Peter's account of everything, and he's really, very humble. The fact that he's writing things like, like he, he's sleeping when Jesus was you know, during the garden and, and he was sweating blood, Peter was just sleeping, and, and you know, Peter also was the one who walked on water. He jumped off the boat, walked a little bit, and they looked, turned his eye off Jesus and sank. Now, again, before you make these criticisms of Peter, he was the only one that jumped out of the boat. The other 11 was just like watching. was like, oh, man, this is going to be funny. Get your phones out. It was like, a, put this on. No, there was no smartphones back then. But there was just, I, I would chuckle if, I, if a guy just jumped in the water and like, ha-ha. Oh, yeah, I didn't jump in the water either. Oh, that's, I'm convicted. He was also the one that denied Jesus, right? But, again, he was the only one that followed Jesus. He's, the only reason why he got caught was because he was relatively in close proximity. But yet, he will eventually be and we know this in church history, a martyr for the faith. It was said in church history that he was, he was going to get crucified. In fact, his wife was crucified in front of him, and it was said that he was basically trying to encourage the wife to not deny the faith. And I can't imagine how hard that is. Some of you married people know, can you just, I mean, when my wife has like a tummy ache, I'm like freaking out. I can't imagine watching my wife being tortured in front of me for the faith. But that's what happened to Peter. He just kept encouraging his wife to hold on. And eventually, when it was his turn to get crucified, he felt unworthy to be crucified upright, so they crucified him upside down. It takes time to grow. And it took time for Peter to develop a true love for the Lord. Because Peter did have devotion. He did devote his life to the Lord. He did he following him as closely as he can, but his love didn't match that devotion. And I think that's some of us, right? We can claim 
that we're going to follow Jesus to the very end, that we're going to be obedient to him, that we're going to live holy lives. But sometimes we fail. And the reason why we fail is because our love does not match our profession. And I think the Lord is gracious enough to change that. If you want to devote your life to grow in the faith, you must devote your love for the Lord. There must be a greater devotion in terms of your love for him. Because the love of Christ is what controls you, is what compels you to live a life that's pleasing to him. Next one. James, he's one of the sons of thunder. He's a, he's a hot-headed individual. In Luke chapter 9, this is, you know, this is when Jesus, after the transfiguration, and then there was arguments in uh, chapter 9, verse 46, where they're like, who's going to be the greatest? And Jesus tells them that if you want to be the greatest in the kingdom, you've got to be like this child. And it says that, uh, verse 51, when the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. And he, Jesus, sent messengers on ahead of him, and they sent and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. But they did not receive Jesus because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. When his disciple James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Now, it's funny because they think that they have the ability, but it's actually like Jesus could do that. But they, don't, they think they, they, they're overconfident, but they're also kind of cowardly, right? They're saying, we need to burn these people. These guys are evil. Burn them all. And we know in Matthew chapter 20, when they're having this debate about who is the greatest, the person they send is their own mom. They, 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 were, they were bold to set, like, hey, let's set people on fire. But let's, let's ask our mom to see, hey, hey, can you, hey, mom, can you tell, ask Jesus, who, can, can we sit on the left and right of Jesus? Yeah, go, 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 go. That's what happens here in Matthew chapter 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. And he said, what do you wish? She said to him, command that in your kingdom these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right and one on your left. And Jesus answered, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? And I just imagine them popping out. It's like, we can. Yes, we can. They say, we are able. We can do this. And Jesus says, my cup you shall drink. Now, he did, and now I, don't think, I don't think James understood what that meant. Because according to church history, that's exactly what happened. In fact, in Acts chapter 12, verse 1 to 2, he was the first apostle to be beheaded. He was the first to be killed. Why was he killed? Because that, you know, he was the sons of thunder, and then the, I think the Lord just used that. He became a powerful preacher. He tried to win people to Christ, and he was killed for it. The Lord used his hot-headedness, temper, and then refined it so that he can be a herald of, this, of the gospel. He wanted fire to come down from heaven at one point. And later on, he was warning people about the wrath that is to come. They trusted Jesus' ability. And this, in a lot of ways, this is showing God's mercy, right? Because Jesus did not come to destroy the world. He came to rescue the world. And I think James finally understood that. Later on, he understood and he was able to go and tell others about Jesus. God changed his desires. So instead of wanting to destroy people like he did before, he warned people of the wrath that is to come. And you know, the reason why James wanted this whole fire thing to come down, it's really for glory's sake, right? He's like, oh, you offended my Lord. Send fire down. Some of us as Christians, we can fight. On the, in the, on the surface, we could be fighting the right thing, but for the wrong reasons. In the last two years, there's so many people that wanted to defend religious liberty, and that seems like the right thing. 
but it could be from a wrong motive. Like, do we fight for religious liberty because we want people to know Jesus Christ? Or do we fight for religious liberty so that we won't get persecuted? A lot of people want to defend religious liberty for the sake of safety as opposed for the spreading of the gospel. And God can change that. God changed it in James' life, and he can change it for you and I as well. If you want to be a mature Christian, know that the Lord can change your desires and can use you in in mighty and unique ways. Now let's look at the third apostle, his brother, John. And this is the one that's known as the disciple that Jesus loved. And it's unfortunate that in, in church history, the way that they draw James is kind of like girly, right? He's the one that's called like, you know, cuddling next to Jesus. And that's actually not the case. He's actually a very manly man. And you know this because at the end of his life, which we'll get to in a sec, he was he's going all out. Like he wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. He wrote a Revelation. He wrote the Gospel of John. He too, like James, he was overly aggressive. And for a while, John, I think, struggled with love. He eventually became the disciple or the apostle of love because he understood God's love for him. He doesn't speak much, but in in Mark chapter 9, verse 33, it said this, but uh, they came down to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he began to question, what were you discussing on the way? And they kept silent, for on the way, they had discussed with one another which one of them is great. So this is a common thread for these two. They love talking about how great they are. Sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, if anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and serve and servant of all. Taking Charlie, he set him before them, taking him in his arms. He said to him, whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me, and whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. John said to him, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we try to prevent him because he was not following us. So there's this weird kind of uh, like pride that he had as well, like only, only the apostles can do these things. Uh, they, he thought that, uh, that he was better than everyone else and that because they're part of Jesus Christ's inner circle, only they can do these miraculous things. And I sense that there's this pride in him, that he wanted glory for himself. But Jesus, in verse 39, said, Do not hinder him, for there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name and be able soon after to speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is for us. He thought that his group was better, that his tribe was better. And he wanted the glory for himself. And I think when he looked back at his own life, he saw the lack of love that he had. He cared more about getting recognition for casting out demons than the fact that there were people that were free from the bondage of demons. And the Lord shaped him to have this tender-heartedness, this love for people. That's why in, in 1 John, it tells him, he writes, he, I mean, he's, he's known as an apostle of love because he always speaks about love. First John chapter 3, verse 18, it says, Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. And third John, second John uh, 1, it says, The elder to the chosen lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth. Verse 3 of second John, Christ... Uh, Christ's mercy and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. John had truth, but he did not have love. And over time, the Lord uh, worked in his life so that he was able to have love. He's more balanced in that way. And I think for all of us as Christians, we tend to swing one way or the other. 
right? We either are those truth people that are just so unloving in the way that we proclaim truth. We tell people, we say things in an unloving tone, but yet Ephesians tells us to speak the truth in love. And on the other end, there are those that are only focused on love and not truth. You know, they're focused on their emotions. Oh, Jesus, uh, uh, he'll accept all religions. But that's not a loving thing to say because it's not true. And we need that balance, just like how John needed that balance. And the, how did he have both of them? It was because he understood that Jesus Christ is both truth and love, that in Christ he's both. Now again, because of his love for the Lord and the truth that he knows, eventually John the Baptist would be boiled alive. He survived it. He was exiled in Patmos, and some people debate on how he died. He might have died after, in, in this exiled island by himself, but he was faithful until the end because he understood God's love for him and the truth that was bestowed to him. Next is Andrew. He was a fisherman as well. He, he, was, one, he, was, actually, he was actually one of uh, John the Baptist's followers. And when he saw the other, when he saw James, John, and Peter, he was, he was like, okay, I'll tag along too. And then that's because John the Baptist said, this is the one. Uh, and, and, you know, what's, what's interesting is like, you know, the group, the 12 were divided between, in three groups. And if you, it's divided in four in each group, and there's three groups. He's actually the least important and the most important group. So he was like, you know, if you watch the Lakers back then when Kobe was around, you don't look at the guy that's benched. You look at Kobe or whoever he's with, right? Or what's Martin, LeBron James. You don't think about the people that are benched. This is what Andrew's like. He was a guy that's benched. Um, no one really knows much about him. He didn't have this. But what, is, what we do know is that he, he didn't seem like he didn't have this fear of missing out. Like he didn't, like the other three saw the transfiguration. He wasn't there. Uh, he didn't see all the cool things that the others saw. Uh, he missed some of the main moments of Jesus' ministry. He, he didn't care about that. The only thing he cared about was that he was able to bring people to Jesus Christ. He was mainly known for being Peter's brother, um, which, again, is funny. It's like, what are you known for? Like, I'm, just, I'm known as being related to this other guy. Um, he wasn't the center of attention. But what is interesting, for all you Andrews out there, do you know what the name Andrew means? You should ask your mom. You know the Andrew? It's manly. Don't be prideful. Be humble. Be like Andrew. Be like, you know, don't, don't take the center of attention. But he, it means manly. And he served a lot in the background, and in fact, uh, again, he was, he was met uh, in, in John chapter 1. He was one of John the Baptist's disciples, and he brought Peter along, which is, again, uh, to me is hilarious, because he brought Peter, and then Peter became the main guy. He's like, wait, but I, okay, fine, it's okay. You know, he understood his role, that he was, he was just a humble individual. He stood in the back, and he brought other people to Christ. Andrew was a humble man. And again, most of us need to be like this. Instead of focusing on self, we just... It's okay to be in the background. Andrew uh, was one of those guys that people didn't recognize. He just brings people to Christ. Eventually, according to church history, he eventually went to Russia at one point to share the gospel. And, and when he was crucified, it wasn't like upside down or the way Jesus was. He, had, he was kind of crucified like an X. Like if you think of like X mark, he was like kind of stretched out and he was crucified that way. And he was... But as he was dying, he was still bringing people and pleading with people to believe in Jesus Christ. True manliness is not based on the standards of this world. It's based on being the fact that we are faithful to the Lord and that we derive our strength from him. People can be confident in so many ways except when they talk about Jesus. Right? We could boast about a lot of things. Oh, I could like, run like this. I could lift this. I could do all that thing. But when it comes to tell people about Jesus, it's like, oh, can I can't do that. They boast about all of these things except the things that we actually need to boast about the most. 
And Andrew was one of those individuals. He was named manly, and he might have been like a, like a jack dude because he's a fisherman too. But what made him unique was that he was willing to stand up to, for Christ and tell people about Jesus. Next disciple is Philip. He is also a fisherman. And this is the guy in the group that's like the logistical guy. He's like not a pessimist, but kind of like a realist. I used to disciple someone that was like that. He you know, was like, hey, uh, I, need, I need you to help me think about uh, some life choices. Like, okay, what, what do you think? And he would give me like 100 different questions. It was like, okay, this is too detailed. And I was just like, what's the general thing? Who will pay you more? Who's going to hire you? You know, like, just go with that. Or when you talk about dating, like, oh, I want to ask this girl out. I was like, what's, keep, what's holding you back? Like, here's 100 different questions I don't know about her. It's like, well, that's why you go on a date to figure out those 100 questions. I can only give you one thing. I think this person's a believer and not married. That's, that's two things. Okay, so figure out the other 98 questions that you have. That's kind of like this. When I thought about Philip, this is the person I think about. He's someone that's just very logistical. He just looks at things and is like, okay, I don't know how this is going to work. John chapter 1, uh, that's really the high point of his life. John chapter 1, verse 43. Uh, this is that for about Philip. Uh, the next day, he purposed to go into Galilee. He found Philip, and Jesus said to him, follow me. And now Philip was from Bethsaida of the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael. And said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. That's like his peak. <laughs> That's like his high point was he just telling someone about Jesus. Eventually, uh, he would go and, and uh, do amazing things. He was a kind of you know, downer in a lot of ways. Later on in John chapter 6, this is when there's the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus asked them, oh, where are, we, uh, where are we to buy bread so that these, may, that these you know, the crowd, uh, may eat? And he was saying to test them, and he, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. And Philip answered, 200 dairy worth of bread is not sufficient for them, for everyone to receive a little. So he's basically saying, like, look, we can't pay for this. Like, what are we going to do? And then in the end, Jesus does a miracle. He shows them that with Christ there are no limitations. You just have to have faith in him. And again, that's where I think some of us struggle too, right? Where we want to know everything. We don't want to live by sight. I know we, do, we don't want to live by faith. We want to live by sight. We want, we want to know everything in life. We want to know every single outcome before we can make any decisions. And oftentimes, that's what cripples you from spiritual growth. You spend so much time thinking and thinking and thinking, life just passes you by. Ministry opportunity passes you by. That's what Philip was like. He just spent all of his time trying to figure out things. In fact, he, he was trying to figure out things that sometimes he just missed the most obvious John chapter 14, verse 8, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? And Jesus is doing some Trinitarian um, you know, apologetics here. He's trying to explain to him that if you, if you look at me, you see my works, you know that I am from the Father. Do not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his work. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. The greater works than these he will do because I go to the Father. And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. He missed the most obvious thing. And that is that Jesus is Lord, that he and the Father are one. He's shown all these miracles. He's like, you know, yeah, show me the Father. He's like, did you miss all the stuff that I was telling you? 
Look at everything that I've done. This is after all the feeding of the 5,000, all the other miracles, he still doesn't get it. And again, be patient with him because we're like that sometimes. You know, one of the most obvious doctrines in our circle is the sovereignty of God. It's the most obvious answer to the biggest crisis in your life. What am I going to do when inflation is going? Trust in the sovereignty of God. Don't worry. What am I going to do with my singleness? Trust in the sovereignty of God. Don't worry. What am I going to do with my job? Job and you know, everything seems to be crumbling around us. Trust in the sovereignty of God. Our circle of, you know, our theological circle, we, we know this, but we're slow to understand. We're slow to see the most obvious thing about the Lord. Philip, according to church history, said that he, was, was, he brought the gospel to Syria and Turkey, and he was eventually martyred as well for the faith. So I would trust that at some point he was, he, he was like, well, where can I go to share the gospel? He probably planned out a route, and maybe like some of us, like, how do we get there? And then eventually he just lived in faith and went out to go tell people about Jesus Christ. Next is Bartholomew. This is, what, this is the guy that, that Philip brought. He's uh, Nathaniel. In John chapter 1, we kind of see his introduction to Jesus. Uh, he was sitting by the tree, and then Philip says, hey, go, let's go see um, this, just this Jesus. In chapter 1 of John, verse uh, 43, uh, just ju- actually jumping down, um, verse 45 or verse 46, actually, Nathaniel said to him, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said, come and see. And uh, Bartholomew, or Nathaniel, is the same person. Uh, he's, he's, he seems to be someone that knows a lot about Scripture. Because he has to understand, like, hey, this is the one that we're thinking about. And in verse 46 and later on, verse 47, Jesus saw Nathaniel coming to him and said to him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathaniel said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered and said, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And then answered, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. This is someone that understood Scripture. In fact, a fig tree back then, people, Jewish people would usually sit under it to meditate or to read God's Word and to pray. So that's what, that's what Nathaniel was doing. That's what Bartholomew was doing. He was praying all of a sudden. Phil was like, hey, we found the Messiah. This is the one that you're reading about right now. This is the one that you're thinking about. He's like, really? And then he sees, and then God, and Jesus gives him a little glimmer of his omniscience. And he believes and worships him. According to church history, he was skinned alive and was also crucified upside down. Uh, he went to Armenia to share the gospel with people, and then apparently there was people that were mad at the fact that he was converting people, and as a way to kind of stop him, that's how they ended his life. And, but he, Nathaniel or Bartholomew, understood that everything about God's word is fulfilled in Christ. And that is the motivation that he has. That knowledge is complete and matured him to the point that he's willing to be skinned alive for Jesus Christ. And I think this is a call for us. Like, do you know your Bible? Do you trust in the promises of Scripture? Because this is what, what we know about God's word is what's going to sustain you in this life. Everything in this world is going to pass away except for the word of God. And you need to be like Bartholomew and, and, or Nathaniel who understood the importance of knowing God's word and making those connections to Jesus Christ because if God's word is true about everything's connected, all the problems he made is true in Jesus Christ, that means all the other future problems that Jesus said will also come true as well. That we will one day live in this glorious place with Jesus Christ and that we will have to suffer in his name, but we will endure as long as we entrust our lives to him. 
Next, Matthew, the tax collector. I talked about him a few weeks ago. He was a traitor to his people. He was a scum of the earth in a lot of ways. But what is interesting about him is that he was a scum of the earth because he basically represents, he was a tax collector and he was promoting Roman ideas and really giving money to them. But he goes from out of the frying pan into the fire because he goes from being a scum of the earth because he's a, a tax collector to being a scum of the earth because he was a follower of Jesus Christ. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 13. That Paul understands, like, yeah, as Christians, in the, in the eyes of the world, we are scum to them. He himself wrote the gospel of Matthew. He knew the Old Testament very well. Nine, there's like about 90 Old Testament references in the book of Matthew to the Old Testament. Uh, he does that because he's trying to win the people that he wants, the Jewish people. He really wanted his people to know that Jesus is king. Now, there's a contrast I want to make here between Matthew and Simon the Zealot that's, that we'll see later. Matthew supported the government, whereas Simon hated the government. He was a zealot. He wanted to destroy the government. But there's this uniqueness that these two people in the polar opposite of the political sense were united because of Christ. Our world thinks that in order to solve all these racial issues, we need to somehow elevate one or the other. That's the world's idea of trying to fix things that have unity, but the church should not be like that. Our unity is first, first and foremost found in Christ. I have, uh, there's someone in my cohorts that's in Ukraine, and he chose to stay. And there were these Russian Christians that are sending him emails, and apparently they're saying, you know, we're sorry that our government's doing this to you, and we'll try to send as much aid as we can. And there's all these other Christians in the European countries that are, are this, like, secret network of Christians that say, hey, if you have refugees from your church or other people that you know, they can send them to our church. Regardless of whatever background they're in, regardless of whatever... Uh, political sphere they're part of. They, saw, they see unity in Christ, and that should be our attitude. Our solution to the world's problems is only found in the gospel. Matthew was a wealthy individual, and he was willing to give all of those comfort that money can bring so he could follow Jesus. He, see, he saw that those things were not worth, they didn't value more than Jesus Christ. Now, history in churches, they're not sure in terms of how uh, Matthew died, but it does say that because there's sometimes there's like conflicting, like it could be one or the other. But the common thread on all of them is that he was killed. He was killed for the faith. Some say he was speared, some people were crucified, some people just say he just died from natural causes. That's probably the only one that's like maybe the exception, but the rest is like he was probably killed somewhere. Next, uh, we're almost done, guys. Hang in there. Like Thomas, he's his name means twin. We don't know if he has a twin sister or twin brother or does he have someone that looks exactly like him running around. But we know him because he's known as the doubter, you know, the guy like Thomas, uh, uh, you know, doubting Thomas, right? And again, if we were in Thomas' shoes, we would be exactly the same. Some things that, that happened in Jesus' life, like, oh, is it really true? Is it really possible? And, uh, and we see this in the, in the gospel. Uh, John chapter 11 uh, he was devoted, but he wasn't sure what was going to happen. John chapter 11, verse, 50, or verse 15 to 16. This is regarding Lazarus. Uh, he died, and then he said, okay, let's go. Uh, verse 16, therefore Thomas, who was called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, let us go so that we may die with him. It's such a pessimistic thing to think um, because he doesn't know what the future holds. You know, and again, this shows a weakness of the flesh. And later on, John chapter 14, verse 5 uh, this is, you know, Jesus trying to comfort a disciple. He's in the upper room. He's going to leave soon. And he says, 
And Jesus said, if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. And where I am, there you may be. And you know where, and you know the way where I am. And Thomas said, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one gets to the Father but through me. So he, he was just, doesn't, he's, he's just doubting and second-guessing himself. In fact, we know the most famous part of his life is actually at the, when Jesus rose from the grave. John chapter 20, uh, verse 24. But Thomas, one of the 12 called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. Now, don't think like, oh, he's, he's like, you know, he, he's like denied the faith. He's just, you know, broken, sorrow. He's just struggling with his faith. Verse 25, so the other disciples were saying to him, we have seen the Lord, but he says, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hands into his side, I will not believe. Again, it's a struggle. It's hard for him to believe. And eventually, verse 27, and he said to Thomas, reach here with your finger and see my hands and reach here your hand and put it into my side and do not be unbelieving, but, be, but believing. Thomas answered and said, my Lord and my God. Jesus understands his struggle. He understands hard to hold on to the faith. Even though Jesus right before them, he lived those three years with them. And that's, he understands our struggle as well. But we have something even greater. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 19, 20 tells us we have something even greater than some of the miracles that is in Scripture. But we have the word of the living God. God's word is what's going to keep us in our doubts. Now, you're not, you, in order to get into heaven, you don't need like, an A plus on your faith. You just need a mustard seed like faith. So it's like a C minus, that passing. Whatever the lowest it is, that's, that's the, the requirements. You just need a mustard seed like faith. The next one, James, the son of Alphaeus. It's funny because in other gospels, he's known as the lesser. Uh, it could be because he's short. Some people think he's the youngest one. Some people think he's just maybe lacking in influence. Um, and actually, there's not much that's said about him in the New Testament, except I hold to the view that he's actually the writer of the Gospel of James, or not the Gospel, the Epistle of James. Uh, he's known later on, he's, it seems like his name changed in his church history from James, son of Alphaeus, to James the Just. He was someone that in the entire you know, New Testament, in the Gospels and the, the Book of Acts, not much is known about him, but he did write this epistle. Eventually, because of his, uh, you know, because of his righteous life, and you know, he lived for the Lord, and his proclamation of God's word, he was thrown off a basically a tower, and stones were, uh, were he was stoned to death. And it should be a reminder for us that even if no one recognizes our uh, what we've done for the Lord, God knows. In fact, the only thing that mattered about James was that we were able to get the Epistle of James. Most of us, most of our works in this life is going to be like vapor; it's going to disappear. And what, but however, what is done for Christ, that's the only thing that will last. And I think the only thing that James did that lasted was the fact that he wrote the epistle of James. Things that have eternal value. Next one, Thaddeus. This is in the, another gospel he's known as uh, Judas, not Iscariot. And I think that's funny because Thaddeus, the name is Mama's boy. Uh, I told Kelly this yesterday. Hey, Thaddeus is Mama's boy. Like, oh, Nicholas is such a Thaddeus. It means Mama's boy. Um, he's Probably, I don't know, he, 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 was, he, was, he, he might have been like a very tender individual, uh, maybe childlike faith as well, but again, not much is said about him, but it's said that he, uh, in church history, it's said that he, he took the gospel to Turkey, and in one account that he was actually clubbed to death on a missionary trip uh, when he was with Simon the Zealot, and even though this mama was boy, 
you know, who's known as this, he eventually became a man for the Heavenly Father. Next one, Simon the Zealot. I made this reference earlier when he was, you know, he's basically the counter to Matthew and uh, that he was part of the, this political party, this, this outlaw. They were fiery assassins. They killed people when they got the chance. But when he got saved, uh, he didn't care about those things anymore. In fact, if he, before he came to saving faith, he might have had the opportunity to kill Matthew too because he hated Rome. But the Lord changed that in his life. He changed that zealousness for the, uh, to go against the government to having the zealousness for the kingdom of God. He no longer was a man of the world. Church history, some people have said that he was sawed in half. Um, again, because of his faith, he wasn't sawed in half because he was fighting the governments, but because he wanted to tell people to go to this kingdom uh, that, that, that's reigned by Jesus. The last one, I'm going to try to go as fast as I can, but the last one is Judas. Uh, Judas, if you look it up in a dictionary, they just, they just call him traitor, basically. Uh, Judas Iscariot, he's, what's unique about him is that he, unlike the other disciples, he actually isn't from Galilee. He himself is from Judah. Um, he, was, uh, he was someone that, that Jewish people tend to look up to or, or look down depending on who you are. They have, they have this almost extreme view of people that are from Judah. Like, oh, Jude, that's where the Savior is from. That's where David was. And all of these, uh, uh, you know, that's where the king used, is supposed to be, the, the kingly line. In fact, the disciples were shocked. In the in book of Mark, it said, Judas is scared who betrayed him. That's not like Jesus affirming his name. Like, okay, you're Alphaeus, you're, you're, you're Simon Peter, and you, Judas, you're the one that's going to betray me. Okay, next item in the docket. It wasn't like that. He was so good at manipulating that no one saw it coming. In fact, it was so much so that when Jesus pointed out that Judas was a traitor, the disciples were like, who? You didn't tell us. Who's the traitor? Tell us who it is. Judas seemed to be very gifted, but he didn't have a true devotion for the Lord. And actually, again, he came from, it could be that he was just so crafty. He looked like them, and he was able to fool all of the disciples. In the midst of ministry and close proximity with truth, he still did not have a desire and love for, for Jesus Christ. Judas had an incredible amount of knowledge, and because of that, he has a greater and stricter judgment because he, know, he knew a lot about the Lord. What about you? Some of you know a lot about God's Word. Some of you grew up in the church. You went through the, the little Bible story with your teachers. You went through middle school, high school ministry. Now you're here. Do you have a genuine love for Jesus Christ? Because knowledge puffs up. Knowing things about the Lord does not mean you have a genuine love for the Lord. Many people have betrayed Jesus. First John, or many people have denied Jesus. First John said that they left us because they are never with us. And oftentimes there's these I think the, the reason, there's like, I see as these like steps of people that of denying the faith versus the self-deception. You know, Judas probably deceived himself. He deceived that he was a follower. He did all of these things. He did all these ministry things. Then eventually there's this corruption and dogma in terms of the moral principles. There's this compromise that they make. And eventually that compromise in their dogma leads to a, doc, a compromise in their doctrine. People will make theologies to fit into their sinful lifestyle. Eventually, when they can't fit it any, lo- any longer, they deny the faith altogether. Now, understand in this context, how do we reconcile this? Because Jesus chose this 
guy that's going to deny the faith. He's going to betray him. Now, much like some of the hard doctrines, this is what we call the doctrines of concurrence, meaning two things that are not actually par- they're not like a, they're not going against each other just from our perception. It's one thing, but it's all part of God's divine plan. Judas was chosen, but he was chosen not for redemption. In fact, this is something the Old Testament talks about. Even from Judas getting the 30 pieces of silver, does all the way back in Zechariah, I believe. And then even Psalm 55, it tells us that, that there's that this messianic psalm, it, it says, Psalm 55, verse 12, For it is not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it, nor is one who hates me who has exalted himself against me, then I could hide myself from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, and my familiar friend, who we had sweet fellowship together, walked in the house of God, the throng, let death come deceitfully upon them, let them go down and lie to Sheol, for evil is in their midst. Evil is in their dwelling and in their midst. I do think that this is a prophetic psalm by David, really saying what Judas is going to do. There's a warning for us that just because you give yourself to ministry does not mean that you've given your life to Christ. You need to be moved by the Lord, not to do ministry, though those things are fine, but you need to love the Lord first, have a genuine heart for him, and that should move you to do all things for his glory. Don't think that just because you have ministry that you have genuine salvation. The stuff that you do in the church does not mean you have a true and genuine faith. This is what I fear the most for some of you, that you think that coming to church, knowing all these things about the Lord, and you, in a lot of ways you can fool us, right? I mean, you can fool me. I'm very easily deceive you to, yeah, you see, you love the Lord, okay, I'll take, you, take your word for, for, for face value. But the Lord knows. He knows if you truly have an affection for him. Judas apparently did not. Even though he was, the Lord sovereignly uh, chosen for this, for not for redemption, he was still responsible for his rejection of, tr- of the truth. Now, as we look through all these 12 disciples, there are some things that we can learn from all of them. Uh, and I'm sure if we have more time, we can talk more about them. But if you want to get out of your little Peter Pan syndrome of the faith, look at these 12. They started out as infants in the faith, but they end up being great men. Even someone like Judas, he was able to do some good things. But God, the Lord even solemnly used him to fulfill his promises. These apostles, in a lot of ways, aren't that different from us. But what we have in common is that God is with us. He's indwelling inside of us. You can be used mightily by the Lord if you remember that God chose you, and that he gave you a commission, and you use the disciples and the apostles that we have in Scripture as a template of a life of faithfulness. And I trust if you remember these things, that the Lord can use you mightily in this life. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, I do pray for us that we are like the 11th, apostles and not Judas, that our hearts are true to you, that we don't derive our salvation from the things that we do in this life, that we don't think about um, salvation as just a, a, a something that we say, but have a real faith in you. Lord, I do pray for some of the people here that might not be saved, that there might be even some that are at the moment like Judas, some who 
can deceive all of us, and I pray that you can soften their hearts to the truth of the gospel. Allow them to repent now and to receive your destruction later. Help us, Lord, to cherish you more each and every single day in hopes that we can be used by you in such a mighty way that like the apostles that were faithful to you, that we can draw people to you and if even need be, die for you so that people can just, even if it was one person, come to saving faith, that, they'll still, that they will want to know you because how great you are. Lord, thank you for the time that we live in, that we see as a privilege to live in this fallen world, and knowing that you are in us, that you're indwelling in us, and will give us the right word to say, and for us to just strive to live for holy lives, Lord, because of your sovereign work in our life. Thank you in your son's precious name. Amen. All right, we have one question, and I'm sorry we went a little late. Um, we just have one question for your discipleship or your discussion groups. How does seeing Jesus' intentional choosing of the 12 help me be a better brother and sister in Christ to others in the church? I mean, I know there was a lot of information that came in, but if you just latched onto one, just think about that. That's okay. Just talk about the one thing that you learned. If you, you know, there's a lot more than that, that's fine too. Uh, but just think about these 12, see them as an example of, of infant faith to mature faith. And I know that that's all of us who we're in different stages and phases of our faith. Uh, but, you know, Hebrews 11 tells us that we have like a list of people that we can look up to. And I think the reason why this is all recorded is for our edification and to strengthen our faith.